You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are revisiting a topic that is super important and super timely. Ticks. All things related to ticks. Before we get into that, just a reminder that if you did not tune into last week's episode, you're really missing out because we tackled a tasty topic of sushi. We talked all about risk of foodborne illness from sushi. We talked about the sushi grade label all kinds of good stuff. We told some, you know, embarrassing personal stories <laughs> and experiences being sick from fish-related uh, food poisoning. But anyway, definitely go check that out if you haven't already. So you may have noticed that I am not indoors right now. I'm, I'm outside. I'm actually on my, my balcony, which is pretty appropriate for today's episode since right over my shoulder, you'll see the woods. We often go hiking back there and I come back with ticks and I frantically message Andrea to, to talk me down uh, and to, you know, debunk a lot of misinformation and fears around ticks. And then Andrea, you are in a hotel room right now. <laughs> I am. Yes. I just arrived in Dallas. I have a week long, a work meeting. Um, so, you know, just figuring out ways to multitask. So nothing, nothing stops the pod. Um, all right. Well, I would like to introduce a very special guest. And Andrew, you're going to you look confused for a second. But the special guest is the executive director of the American Lyme Disease Foundation, <laughs> which happens to be our very That's own me. Dr. Andrea Love. I knew she was going to be like, what the heck is Jessica talking about? I thought you were going to like pull a pet onto your lap. <laughs> no, no pets, although they do bring in a lot of ticks. Um, but no, Andrea, please do just share, please uh, brag about yourself a little sure. bit and share about your, your position. Sure. So yeah, I was appointed the executive director of the American Lyme Disease Foundation in January of this year. Um, and the organization, it's a nonprofit organization. The board of directors is filled with researchers and clinicians that specialize in infectious diseases, specifically vector-borne and tick-borne pathogens. And our goal is simply to help educate the public. So we provide resources on the website. It's uh, www.aldf.com, where we provide information about Lyme disease very specifically, um, but a lot of other tick-borne pathogens and illnesses that can be caused by ticks. We also try to debunk and address misinformation and misconceptions about ticks and Lyme disease. And I'm actually in the process of doing a big overhaul to the website. So I'm hoping that once summer rolls around, I'll have some even more um, you know, up-to-date resources there. Another thing that we do is we routinely survey the emerging publications in the sphere of Lyme disease and other vector-borne diseases, and we try to post updates um, and new guidance and new information on the website as well. So, Andrea, obviously, I brought up your, your position um, as the executive director of the American Lyme Disease Foundation, because when you think ticks, I mean, people automatically think Lyme. Yes. However, I, you know, no one knows better than you. I mean, please share with us. You're not only worried about Lyme disease when we're talking about ticks, because ticks can transmit 
other things. So is I don't know yes. is that maybe a good starting place or where where Yeah, so so ticks very broadly are um, organisms that are technically considered arthropods and they're actually technically arachnids within arthropods. Um, and so they're tangentially are distantly related to things like scorpions, spiders, and mites. And so one characteristic of this group is that they have four pairs of legs and no antennae. And so something unique about ticks is that they are arthropods that feed on blood in order to survive. And so as a result, they have to bite animals that have blood with which they can get food. So blood is their food source. Um, It provides nutrients, glucose, minerals, all sorts of things that ticks need in order to support their basic bodily functions and reproduce. I think there's also a a misconception that all ticks carry Lyme disease and Lyme disease is only the, the only thing that we need to worry about and all ticks bite humans. And again, a lot of misconceptions. So ticks are a very broad class of organisms, and they're actually uh, globally about 850 different tick species. In the U.S. alone, there's about 90 species of ticks that have been identified. Um, and there's actually only a very few species of ticks that actually bite humans and our pets. And, and we are actually considered incidental hosts, meaning it, we're not the preferred meal for a tick. Ticks depending on the species, like to feed on different types of organisms, very often small mammals and rodents, other larger hoofed mammals like deer and so on and so forth. So when ticks come across a human or one of our pets, they're only grabbing onto us and feeding on us because we happen to enter their you know, kind of environments. I'm, you know, I've shared, I'm originally from from Brooklyn, but now I'm living in Western Mass. So I'm in New England and this is a whole new world for me. And Andrea, you're always like, welcome to New England. I'm like, there's dicks everywhere. Like, what do I do? So there are certain areas, right? Where it's different Mm -hmm, geographic mm -hmm. areas where different ticks will live. And then there are certain areas where ticks aren't all that common. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, you know, and, and this, you know, is a dynamic process because ticks are obviously, they thrive depending on how the environment changes and and as a result of you know how their hosts population changes. And so there's a very complex um, cycle. Their life cycle is called the enzootic life cycle and actually occurs over several years um, in order for them to become an adult and ultimately reproduce and produce eggs and, and the next generation of ticks. But their ability to survive is also dependent on the host's ability to survive in a given population. So it's also dependent on the type of food that hosts need um, in order to survive. And so that's also dependent often on uh, the climate and the weather and things like that. So certain seasons, you might have a higher tick season than others. And that's sometimes a result of maybe a milder winter, or maybe there's more acorns, so more rodents are are reproducing, and then there's more hosts for the ticks to feed on, and so on and so forth. That's so interesting, because it was a mild winter here, and everyone here is saying, oh my goodness, there are more ticks than ever. I mean, we don't remember a time when there have been this many ticks. So that's, I didn't even realize that there's a connection there. Okay, I'll have to share that little tidbit. So ticks do have an antifreeze, which allows them to serve survive over the winter. So it's, it's a glycerol. It's, um, it's, it's very similar to like the antifreeze in your car, but, but it basically allows them to survive the winter, even if there is a frost. However, some do inevitably die. But when you have a milder winter, um, where you don't really have any hard frost or, or an extended period of frost, it can promote a greater survival of those populations. And then of course, there's other ecology at play, including the food sources for the hosts of the, the ticks, um, which are ultimately going to determine whether or not they have a blood meal to feed on. 
And Jess, you're absolutely right. Like certain tick species are going to be more prevalent in certain areas of the country. So, you know, when we talk about Lyme disease, we're very often talking about black-legged tick, which is sometimes colloquially called the deer tick. Now, there are only two species of ticks in the country that can spread and transmit Lyme disease to humans and and other mammals, and those are the black-legged tick and the western black-legged tick. So the black-legged tick is predominantly found in the northeastern U.S., the Midwest, so the region around Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and historically really like New Jersey northward, but it is the geography of the black-legged ticks is expanding a little bit further southward. So you will see ticks well into the mid-Atlantic region and so on, and those are where those two tick populations, um, the black-legged tick is most common, the Midwest and the Northeast, and that's really why a lot of focus on Lyme disease research is, is in those regions. The western black-legged tick is usually found in the California coast, um, and that's where you can also find Lyme disease on the west coast. But typically, you don't find a lot of Lyme disease in other parts of the country because that particular species of ticks, they're not found in those regions. Now, as I mentioned, climate change is leading to the spread of those black-legged ticks more westward, but there really is kind of a clear demarcation right right really on the Rocky Mountains. You don't typically find black-legged ticks west of the Rocky Mountains. But as I mentioned, there's 90 different species of ticks in the U.S. So there's other tick species that we do care about in the context of humans and also pets because they can transmit other things. So as I mentioned, these two ticks are the only ones that can transmit Lyme disease, but there are other potential pathogens that they can spread as well. Um, We've done some posts on that, but there's other ticks as well. So the Lone Star tick is predominantly found in the southeastern U.S. It's less common northeastern, but again, the geography is expanding a little bit, especially with development of lands and, and human movement. And the female is a very aggressive tick. That's the one that's brown with a white spot on the, or a yellowish spot on the back. Um, And the Lone Star tick can, of course, transmit other pathogens that we would be concerned about, Um, things like um, bourbon virus and Ehrlichia and and tularemia. Um, So those are other things we want to be conscious of. We also have the brown dog tick, which is pretty much found everywhere. And the brown dog tick is one that is um, swells up. It's one of those really, um, it gets really engorged when it fills with blood. And um, as you can expect, they really do like to feed on dogs. They're the primary host of the brown dog tick. But they will, again, incidentally bite humans or other mammals if, if they come across them. And one of the primary pathogens of concern with the brown dog tick is Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And then you also have the American dog tick, which are sometimes called wood ticks. And these are very often found east of the Rockies really widely and really up through kind of southern Canada and so on. And a concern for those are that they can, you know, again, spread some of these other pathogens. Obviously, Andrew, you know, uh, about a month ago, I had a a tick on, I was, I all of a sudden I was in bed and I felt something on my back and I went to scratch and I'm like, oh no, what is this? Looked in the mirror. It was a tick frantically messaged Andrea. This was my my first tick bite. I know, Andrea, you said you've had like hundreds <laughs> of ticks growing up, you know, going out and exploring in nature. And the thing that you said that really calmed me down, and it's so funny because you've said this a thousand times, you know, we've done tons of content on ticks and tick bites, but when it happens to you, you know, it's like all logic yeah, flies out the window. And you said to me, um, I, I, I think it's really worth repeating for folks that the large majority of ticks do not carry pathogen. So what percentage actually do? Yeah. So again, it's, it's, it's going to vary geography by geography, but 
very broadly speaking, we'll lump kind of everything into a bucket here. It's estimated that about 10 to 20 percent of ticks carry some sort of pathogen that could be transmitted to a human. Now, there are things that live inside a tick that could never physiologically be transmitted to a human, whether because of the environment within the tick or because um, it just, you know, the mechanics of it wouldn't work or because the the the, the deposition process wouldn't be successful. Um, so just because you find something in a tick doesn't mean it actually could infect humans. But yeah, so broadly speaking, about 10 to 20 percent of all ticks have something that could cause illness to a human. Certain areas are going to have higher prevalence of certain pathogens than others. Um, So, for example, the prevalence of um, ticks carrying the Lyme disease bacteria, which is called Borrelia burgdorferi, is higher in the Northeast than it might be in other parts of the country. And that's because, again, the more bacteria in the environment circulating in different hosts, the more ticks can pick it up and so on and so forth. So reducing the spread of these potential pathogens means that we reduce the prevalence of of tick bites and and preventing tick bites and all of those sorts of things. So, you know, it's not just Lyme disease that we want to be concerned about. There are other things that that actually are are can be far more serious than Lyme disease even. Um, Lyme disease is a bacterial infection that can be treated with antibiotics. There are some um, rare but concerning viral infections that can be transmitted by certain ticks. Um, A couple of examples would be Heartland virus and Powassan virus. Those are transmitted by two different tick species, but of course, you know, viruses, um, there's no treatment options, and there's other bacterial infections as well. So um, anaplasmosis is caused by a bacterial pathogen. Rocky Mountain spotted fever is caused by a, um, a bacterial pathogen. Tularemia also caused by a bacterial pathogen. And then there's also, a, um, you know, parasitic infections. So babesiosis is another example of a, a parasite that can infect Um, people through tick bites. So again, not just Lyme disease, other things as well, but not every species of tick can transmit the same combination of pathogens, and certainly not every tick is infected. And Andrew, you have developed so many incredible posts and so so much incredible content on Lyme disease. If you know, that is the thing that people are talking most about, even though, as you said, there are so many other things that could be transmitted um, that it could even potentially be more dangerous. So definitely go check that out on our database. It's linked in our in our bio if you haven't already done that. And one thing I, I don't I don't know that this uh, that we want to talk about it here now, but just really emphasizing what you just said that. Lyme disease is treatable. It's a bacterial infection that is treatable with antibiotics. And, you know, people talk a lot about chronic Lyme disease. And Andrea, I know you have a lot to say about this. So, you know, in this kind of COVID world that we're living in, you know, I I think maybe the most appropriate analogy would be likening a certain population who have previously been infected with the bacteria that cause Lyme disease. A small proportion of people report persistent symptoms such as fatigue and lethargy and sometimes joint pain, depending on the strain of bacteria that infect them. And unfortunately, it's been promoted by some individuals without evidence that this means that there's a chronic infection. And so these people are taking potentially dangerous and and harmful long-term antibiotics and and all sorts of other treatments to treat this chronic infection, when in reality, it's it's what we call post-acute sequelae. So the official word is post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, which basically means you've done your treatment, you've killed off the bacteria, but you still had some tissue damage from the infection itself, and and those can present as some persistent symptoms. It's a very small proportion. It's about 10% of individuals 
that experience this. Um, and that typically does self-resolve within six months to a year after having um, Lyme disease. So again, there's no such thing as a chronic infection with Lyme disease. And, and unfortunately, there are some bad faith actors that that do propagate this misinformation and and um, profit off of it. And I think the reason that we, we talk about this so much is that it's frustrating that if someone is suffering, you know, if there are, if there are some chronic symptoms that someone's experiencing and you're being told that it's chronic Lyme, I mean, it's, it's likely there's something else going on that's being ignored and not properly diagnosed and treated. And that is obviously dangerous. Um, this is not intended to shame. You know, a lot of people, chronic Lyme is something that I honestly, I didn't realize it, it wasn't a thing until you, you schooled me. I mean, I had no idea. So Andrew, I guess I just wanted to also flag that the other thing that you said to me that I didn't know, and I think it would be helpful to talk about for folks is that when, when I had my bite, you said, well, how long has it been attached? Should ha- ticks have to be attached for a long time in order to, to transmit the disease. So can you talk to us about that and like the feeding process and that whole thing? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so first of all, you know, ticks like to live in tall grasses and wooded areas because that's where they're most likely to come across a host, right? They're looking for, you know, warm-blooded animals. So typically we're going for mammals, often small mammals, but some larger mammals depending on the tick species. Um, but they will also feed on birds and occasionally reptiles and amphibians if they come across them. And so one of the misconceptions is they fall out of trees. That's not a thing. Ticks crawl up things in order to find a host. And so we're looking, uh, they're going to be most predominant in grassy areas, especially those with tall grass or or shrubs or or lightly wooded areas. And so typically what's going to happen is they, and I'm really excited to get to demonstrate this again, but they start a process called questing, which means that they crawl to the top of a blade of grass usually, and they let go of their first pair of legs and they wave them. Sometimes their, their first two pairs of legs. And they wave them around and they're looking for something, an animal to walk by that they can grab onto. And they actually can sense this by temperature and carbon dioxide changes, um, which indicate that a mammal or an animal is nearby them. And so once the the eggs hatch of a, of a tick, now they emerge as the larva and they need immediate blood meal. So they start to quest as a larva. They go through this feeding process the first season. They emerge in the spring as nymphs. They need another blood meal that next spring, and then they do the same once more time. The next spring, they emerge as an adult, and that's essentially their life cycle, at which point they're going to be able to reproduce. Larva cannot infect humans because they are freshly hatched, and you don't have transoval transmission of the bacteria. So if a, a female tick was infected and she laid eggs, those eggs would not have the bacteria. So larva are never infected until they feed and, and potentially pick up the bacteria from an infected animal, and that's where they become infected and then that bacteria will stay in their body through that that nymph and that adult um, stage and that's how they ultimately pick it up. So what they do is they're questing, they're waiting for something to walk by, they grab onto them and then what they have to do is if they crawl on that animal and find a suitable place to feed. So with animals with fur, it's often much easier because there's lots of places they can kind of hide in the fur, but typically they're looking even on a mouse or, or another animal, they often will feed behind the ear um, because that's a place that an animal 
animal can't groom. Um, but as they're climbing up their body, they're, they're small, so they don't move that quickly. And it can take anywhere between 15 minutes to two hours, depending on the host and depending on the tick, in order to find a, a suitable feeding place. So same is true with humans. They're climbing up us. They're looking for a good place to feed. And once they attach, they, they actually use some cement to thoroughly attach themselves, and they secrete sometimes an anesthetic that um, in their saliva so that you don't necessarily feel them when they bite you. And they will typically feed for several days um, before dropping off, and then they have to go and digest. They're not going to go bite something else um, until they fully digested their blood meal. And remember when I, when I had my bite, I felt it bite me, and it really hurt me. And so we were saying maybe my body was extra sensitive to whatever it is that they were secreting. So Yeah, so, so some people, you know, may have a dermatological reaction. Yeah. Like for me, example, when I get bitten by tick, I actually get very itchy at the bite site. And that actually allows me to find them very quickly, which is beneficial because as just mentioned, um, depending on the pathogen, sometimes it takes several days for a potential pathogen to be transmitted if a tick is feeding. So if you're very prompt about removing any ticks that you find on you that have actually bitten, it really, really reduces the risk of you getting infected, even if you've been bitten. So I think there's a misconception that you know, you've been bitten by a tick, you're immediately infected with something. And, and that's just really not the case. There are certain things that can be transmitted very quickly, such as Powassan virus, because that's a viral infection. Um, and that can be transmitted within 15 minutes. But it's very, very, very rare. So that's not something that you really have to be terribly concerned about. Um, Borrelia burgdorferi, the Lyme disease bacteria, that's typically 48 hours until you have a chance. And, and something like anaplasma phagocytophilum, which causes anaplasmosis, is about 24 hours. So that's why being proactive about preventing ticks and removing ticks is really the best way to really eliminate your risk of illness from ticks. So let's talk about prevention. And I have some props here, um, thanks to what, what you've advised me. The first tick checks. So tick checks, super important. Anytime you, your kids, your pets are outside, you want to inspect yourself and your pets very thoroughly after coming indoors. So for humans, you want to check full body skin check. So we're doing all of the nooks and crannies. So places that are easy for something to hide that won't be disturbed. So the front of your forearm, probably not a place a tick's going to bite, but armpits, navel. So in the belly button, in the groin, in and around the ears, the backs of the knees, um, around your hairline, really like anywhere Toes, that they can. butt crack. Yep. In between toes, in the butt crack, all of the bits and pieces. That's where ticks are going to be looking. With a pet, because a lot of times, you know, they're kind of getting obstructed by the fur, you want to get into the practice of running a flea and tick comb through the pets afterwards. We'll talk a little bit about pet preventatives in a minute, but those preventatives are typically not killing the ticks on contact. The tick actually has to bite. So the ticks can be crawling on your pets after they come indoors. So if you go out and walk your dog and you're in thick grass, or wooded areas, comb the ticks out, even if they're on a preventative, because you're going to catch some before they even have a chance to bite. And, you know, I have four dogs and two, well, three of them are lighter colored, but my darker, my Klaus is black. And so it's obviously harder to see ticks. And so that's why for Klaus, it's really important. I got this, um, what, like a comb. Uh, it's like a yeah, double, it's like a double yep. Yep. comb. You can see some of my dog fur in this if you're watching on the YouTube. And this is absolutely critical for Klaus. And then also one of my dogs, Maccabee, is of is very long hair. You know, he's very long hair and, and thick fur. So for him, I definitely spend a lot 
lot more time like going through his fur. He's the he's the main culprit for us, I think. Yeah. And the other thing that I think a lot of people forget is that ticks can also, you know, latch onto your clothing. And so if you find ticks on your clothing, you know, discard of those, but you can also um, tumble dry your clothing at really high heat for 10 minutes. That will kill any potential ticks that are on your clothing after you come inside. If you have time to take a shower, you know, after being outdoors. There actually are data that demonstrate that showering within two hours of coming indoors can reduce your risk of getting bitten by ticks and ultimately risk of tick-borne diseases because, again, these ticks are crawling around and they haven't attached it and they're looking for a good place to bite. So if you wash them off before they have a chance to bite, uh, again, you're going to really, really reduce your risk. Next in my arsenal against ticks, thanks to Andrea, I have DEET and I have... Picardin? How do you say it? Picaridin. Picaridin. Wow, I was yeah. close. Who the hell's Picardin? Picaridin. There you go. So you want to talk about yes. these for a yeah. second? Yeah. So DEET and Picaridin are what we consider to be insect repellents. And so what they do is they actually mask our scent a little bit so that ticks can't they don't recognize us as as frequently. And so this these are two substances that you would apply directly to your skin. For DEET, the recommended concentration is about 20 to 30% concentration of DEET, and that will be effective for about eight hours for ticks. And picaridin, you want to use a 20% picaridin. Some people prefer picaridin because it has a little bit less of an odor than DEET. Um, they are both highly effective. There are some websites that will also mention things like oil of eucalyptus. Unfortunately, these essential oils, these natural, there's not a lot of data that demonstrate that they're effective, particularly on ticks. So I would really recommend sticking with the, the ones that have demonstrated safety and efficacy data, which are the DEET and the picaridin. And let's give our disclaimer, DEET is not the same thing as DDT. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> DEET is okay. very, very safe. It's not harmful to the environment. It's, it's safe for pregnancy. It's safe for kids two months and older. And kids can use anywhere from 10 to 30% DEET safely. There are DEET that is up to 100% concentration, and typically when you're looking at percentage of DEET, you're talking about time of protection. So the higher the concentration, the longer it will protect you. So something like 20 to 30% DEET will be eight hours of protection. If you go down to 10% DEET, that's only two hours of tick protection. So you will need to reapply those. Um, But again, multi-pronged approach, use those repellents when you're outside. Next up, permethrin. Yes, and I hate that it calls it a repellent because it's not a repellent. It's actually an insecticide. And so permethrin and what you want to use on your clothing specifically is 0.5% permethrin. So permethrin is actually an insecticide. And what this means is it will kill ticks on contact. So it'll actually kill the ticks, not just repel them. And this is something that is, again, noted to be applied to your clothing. You can use the squirt bottle as Jess has, and you want to treat your clothing per the instructions, let them fully dry before wearing them, do it outdoors because wet or liquid permethrin can be harmful, especially to cats if they ingest it. Or you can buy pre-treated clothing. So a lot of outdoor um, companies, sporting good companies actually have pre-treated permethrin clothing. And once you treat it one time, it actually lasts for several wash cycles. So then you can just get into the habit of having like your outdoor clothes, you treat with permethrin periodically. So then you have this multi-pronged approach. You have your permethrin to kill ticks that climb onto your clothes. You've got your um, repellents to prevent or uh, reduce the likelihood of them crawling on you because they don't like that. And then you have your 
your tick checks and showering and, and, you know, checking your clothing after the fact. So all of those things are going to help reduce your risk of getting bitten by a tick. Andrea, for permethrin, as you said, it can be toxic to, to cats and like, I don't know, other animals, but I know cats in particular. And so we got a lot of comments and questions about that. And you were saying that, yes, it's, it, it can be toxic, but once it dries, it's Correct. no longer toxic. Correct. Okay. Yep. Once it dries, it does not pose a harm. And I say this as someone who uses permethrin and has seven cats. Um, I'm very, I am very aware <laughs> of um, the risks. You know, I don't allow lilies anywhere near my home because of those toxic risks. But again, yes. Um, and that's why the instructions on every bottle explicitly state apply in a well-ventilated outdoor area, allowed to dry completely. You don't, you know, it's really, you want to just spray it, let it dry and forget it. And then it's ready to go because um, you don't want to wear wet permethrin treated clothing either. It's not going to be effective until it dries. Okay. So now let's say you did all of this but you still have a tick on you. What do you do? So you got to remove it as quickly as possible. And again, that's why, you know, periodic tick checks, if you just have an outdoor lifestyle is always good because again, they're climbing. Sometimes you might not see them. Certain species of ticks can be very small to see. Like the tick that carry Lyme disease, the black-legged ticks are about the size of a poppy seed. So that sometimes can be kind of challenging to see. So if you do find a tick bitten, you want to remove it as quickly as possible and you want to only use mechanical removal. So you want to use high quality tweezers, what you do is you pull the skin taut. You use the tweezers to get as close to the mouth parts that are embedded in the skin as possible. You grasp firmly and you pull up with a smooth motion. That's going to ensure that you remove the mouth parts and you remove the full body of the tick. Don't try and light it on fire with a match. Don't try to suffocate it using Vaseline. Don't use any other methods that you read on social media. Only use tweezers, mechanical removal. Don't even use those tick remover things. It's like a little corkscrew thing and it's supposed to like twist them out. Don't do that. Just use tweezers, please. That is the way to remove ticks. Now, what about tick testing? Should you send that if you're able to pull it off of, you know, of yourself, are you, should you then send the tick in for testing to identify the type of tick or no. anything like that? I mean, no. if, if you want to know what type of tick it is, sure. If you can't identify by what it looks like with pictures and so on and so forth, but tick testing is not a diagnostic test. So if you want to participate in tick testing for surveillance or research purposes, that's great. But it cannot inform whether or not you've been infected by something. And unfortunately, the abundance of labs, mail-in labs, offering testing for ticks has led to rampant spread of misinformation, diagnosis of implausible co-infections, meaning finding certain bacteria alongside other bacteria that would never be infected to get, you know, never be transmitted together in the same tick. You're going to find things in a tick that wouldn't be transmitted to a human anyway. It also doesn't tell you anything about the likelihood of being transmitted if you find it inside a tick because again there's a there's a time delay between when a tick bites and when it can transmit certain things and again these tests are not validated for diagnosis so you know it's it's useful if you want to participate in surveillance efforts in your community and you're like I found this tick let's see if it has something in it but it cannot tell you if you've been infected. And these these labs are not clinically regulated labs for diagnostic purposes. So then what are, I mean, are there certain symptoms you want to watch out for in a certain time period? And then if a person is concerned, are there clinical diagnostic tests to see whether you 
have been infected. Yeah. So again, for areas with high levels of endemic Lyme disease, meaning where Lyme disease is known to be prevalent, if you um, you know check all the boxes off, like I've been bitten by a black-legged tick for more than 24 hours, I live in an area of high endemicity of Lyme disease, I have you know X, Y, and Z, there's a whole bunch of epidemiological criteria. You can get a prophylactic dose of doxycycline. It's 200 milligrams for um, for adults or, or 4.4 mg per kg for, for kids that are less than 45 kilograms. And this can reduce the likelihood if that tick had fed on you for X amount of time and, and may have transmitted that particular bacteria. But typically, they're only going to do that if it's been identified as the right species of tick, so those black-legged ticks. I was very generous and said 24 hours, but typically it's 36 hours or longer. You can start the prophylaxis within 72 hours of removing the tick because that's when the bacteria are going to be you know, at the site of the tick bite. And again, in those, there's 15 states where Lyme disease is very prevalent. And so if you live in one of those 15 states or you got the tick bite in one of those 15 states. In other instances, you're typically not going to start prophylactic antibiotics. You're going to typically monitor for the development of symptoms. Um, a lot of those symptoms are very nonspecific for all of these different types of pathogens. So low-grade fever, fatigue, lethargy, headache. And unfortunately, you know, there, there are not a ton of really rapid diagnostic tests for different types of tick-borne t- pathogens. We talked about on our Lyme disease episode that um, the tests for Lyme disease are actually looking at the immune response for Lyme disease. So it's our body's response, not the actual detection of the bacteria. So those tests can often give us false positives, meaning it's not telling you if you're actively infected with the bacteria you were infected, you know, a long time ago, potentially even several years ago, because your body's going to have those antibodies after they fight off the bacteria long term. So, you know, a lot of it is kind of clinical patient history, symptoms, epidemiologic likelihood. So a lot of factors that go into play with regard to treating for any of these potential tick-borne diseases. Clinicians are generally on the alert in, in highest activity seasons, so spring, summer, fall. But nowadays, you know, we do see tick activity year-round, although it is much quieter in the winter. So one thing I don't think we chatted about on this episode, we've definitely talked about it in the past, is that pets can take preventatives, right? So yes. my dogs, for example, they take next guard and heart guard, right, for heartworm prevention, but then also tick and flea prevention. That's the next yes. guard, and there are others. And those are highly effective, right? And I, Very effective. And I think you taught me that once the tick attaches, so it can still crawl in the fur, but once it attaches, it basically gets poisoned and dies. Is that right? Yes. So, um, and again, it's very species-specific. So dogs and cats are going to have very different preventative options because they do have different physiology, and they have different thresholds for different compound toxicity. So um, so one of the cool things with pets is that in addition to all those other tiers we talked about, you know, we have these preventatives that can kill ticks once they've bitten um, our pets. And so these preventatives actually should be used year-round if you live in an area with ticks. Doesn't matter what the species are. There are other pathogens that that pets can get that maybe are not as impactful to humans as well. So there's different options. So you have collars like Soresto. Those are repellents and some can also reduce the likelihood of a tick from attaching. But again, those have to be applied tightly to have skin contact. Um, So typically what we're looking at are either topical treatments or oral treatments. And either way, what happens is they are systemic. So those compounds get into the bloodstream of the animal that's been treated. And when the tick bites and starts to consume that blood, they will ingest the compound and that will kill the tick. And these compounds are typically, um, these, these are insecticides or caricides um, that 
what they typically do is they interfere with nerve transmission or muscle transmission or respiratory rate. So this ultimately can lead to like paralysis, convulsions, and death of the ticks very quickly. But in order to actually have their effect, it typically requires the tick to bite the pet. There are a couple of examples for dogs, such as Vectra 3D that also has permethrin in it. And that can also repel and prevent tick attachment as well as kill the ticks once they start to feed. Ooh, I um, need but to look t- into that. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but but typically, typically, so what this means is that you, even if you're treating your pets, you're still going to see ticks crawling on your pets. They have to bite in order to exert the effect, which is why I also recommend doing the flea combing, the flea and tick combing, if your pets are spending time outdoors. Well, and that's that's what I think my my fatal error was, is that, you know, yes, my dogs are on these preventatives, but as, as we just said, you know, they can still crawl in their fur, and then when they come to snuggle with me in bed, what do you think happens? You know, <laughs> the tick kind of crawls off, and and attached to me. And I've had two recently attached to me. Exactly. So that's why I bought that comb that you recommended. I'm just being more more diligent about this multi-prong approach. And so, you know, things that we do want to keep our eyes on as far as illnesses that can spread to our pets. Um, so dogs can also get Lyme disease. It's, 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 not nearly as concerning among um, compared to humans. Only about 10% of dogs, you know, really develop symptoms um, after infection. They can also get ehrlichiosis, anaplasmosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, babesiosis, and, and a couple of others. Interestingly, cats are pretty resistant to Lyme disease. They can technically get infected, but they generally never um, develop symptoms of Lyme disease. They can also develop other sorts of things, though. There's a there's a disease we call bobcat fever, um, and that can lead to severe anemia, and that can be transmitted by a tick. Um, and also tularemia is of a concern for, for cats, um, where it is less of a concern for dogs. So again, you know, preventing ticks on our pets is not just beneficial to to preventing the the ticks spreading among the household, but it also keeps your pets um, safe and healthy too. I feel like we covered a lot of ground. This was a very practical episode. I mean, I found it super helpful. Obviously, I ran out and bought all the things that you told, you told me to, and I'm doing all these things. Are there any other final takeaways or messages you want to share before you take us home? I think the one thing that I really want people to understand is that you know I get it. Ticks are creepy crawly and are kind of scary looking. And you hear a lot on on social media about, you know, the diseases that they spread and, and all of that. But in reality, if you're very proactive and pretty vigilant about, you know, what you do when you spend time outdoors and, you know, doing all of these preventative measures, you're really no higher risk than someone who's not spending time outdoors. So, you know, don't let these things sort of like paralyze you with fear or, you know, have you anxious about going outside and spending time outside. You just have to take a couple of extra steps to ensure that, you know, you and your family can enjoy the great outdoors safely. You know, again, I'm an anecdote, but I've been bitten so many times I can't even count. You know, we used to collect ticks for studies by dragging cloths in tall grassy fields. We're covered with ticks. And, you know, again, you're very proactive, quick showers, tick checks, tick removal, and you can stay pretty safe. All right, Andrea. Well, thank you for all this really incredible information. And with that, can you take us home? Yeah. So thanks for tuning in today. We hope you learned a thing or two. And if you do want to check out the work of the American Lyme Disease Foundation, um, we have a website. It's www.aldf.com. 
www.thepeopleshow.com. We are solely a donation-only based organization. If you want more unbiased science, please check out our Substack subscription. It's $5 a month and it helps support our efforts to bring science communication to the masses. It also grants you access to our private Facebook group, our monthly Q&As, and you get to submit topics for future pod episodes. So check it out at theunbiasedpod.substack.com. And please make sure to subscribe to our YouTube. We are now recording video for all of our episodes. Even if you're not going to listen to the pod on YouTube, just subscribing helps. So you can find it there at www.youtube.com forward slash at unbiasedpod. We will, of course, continue to provide updates on all things science and health related on our social media channel. So be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at unbiasedpod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah. Oh, I am a scientist.